drop. You are listening to Story Forward, the podcast brought to you by the team that also brought you Story Fort Presents Voices of Tree Fort Music Fest. We are your hosts. I am Larry Rosen. Christian Wynn here. The co-founder of Story Fort. You know him well. Uh, we are about halfway through our first season about summer stories, which brings us to our episode about theme parks. You can't really have summer without theme parks. And you can't really have theme parks without summer. I don't know uh, how extensive your theme park past is, Chris. Mine is quite extensive. Mine, I have a decent track record. But yeah, tell us about yours. You're a Southern California guy. Right. When I was 11 years old, we moved to Orange, California. We about, I'm going to say 15 minutes from Disneyland. Okay. And as you'll see, this this episode was real fun for me because we got to bring in one of my oldest friends who I really don't talk to that often uh, because he lives on the other side of the country. Mike Segalis is a friend of mine from high school who um, also grew up. He told he says during this interview, seven minutes from seven miles from Disneyland, and we really got into uh, capturing that sense of what Disneyland meant to people growing up that close to it and how big of a part it played in our lives. And, and we were joking, I think I've told you this before, how we used to tell time by Disneyland in the summer because we always knew when it was 9.30 because that's when the fireworks went off. Oh, yes, you did tell me that before, but that makes sense for sure. Every night, right? Yeah. Every night you'd hear them go, oh, 9.30. Sometimes you'd go out and try to look. From our house, you could see them, but they were pretty small. But from his house, he lived closer. But um, he tells some great stories about walking to Disneyland the whole seven miles. Oh, geez. And just wanted to be close to it. Now, I've probably been to Disneyland, I don't know, a hundred times. And I have to say the last few times I've gone, I've said, I am never going to Disneyland again <laughs> unless it is with grandchildren. Yes. So it's sort of run its course with me. And I don't want to give too much away because I'm doing the correspondent piece today and I go into a little bit about why the story takes place at Disneyland. Yeah. And it sort of explains what it's like to grow up near there. I know. You just uh, booted me off also with the interview today. And then, no, so it's it's all Larry, except for this it's part. It's all me. Yeah, which is 100%. great. Yeah, and you guys had an awesome conversation um, and kind of like a trip down good old memory lane, which might be a Especially part of Disneyland. Is there a memory lane at Disneyland? It seems like there should be. There's a memory lane near Disneyland, actually. No, and it was great for him because, you know, I did this. I think this was his favorite job of all time, being a Jungle Cruise skipper. And he gets behind the scenes quite a bit, actually. Good. A skipper. Okay. It's not just a guide. You're actually a skipper. You are a skipper. Are women skippers, too? At the time, there weren't. And he talks about that a little bit. Uh, I'm sure now there are. He talks about when one of his friends had Pee Wee Herman on his boat. Oh, Dressed as Pee Wee Herman, or was he? Nope. No, was he not? He wasn't doing anything inappropriate, was he? Like dressed as the very shy Paul Rubens. No, he was doing nothing inappropriate. Okay, good. Um, but so yeah, so my theme park past is dominated by one theme park. What about yours? Yeah, well, we I grew up in um, the Bay Area of California before I moved to Seattle as a teenager. So we did make our treks to Disney, um, Disneyland, and then we made one to Disney World. I can't remember exactly how old I was, but yeah, and it's kind of indoctrinated my sister, and <laughs> she lives in Southern <laughs> California now. She's a Disney 
and her husband also very Disney and their kids are very Disney and they live in San Diego. So they make it up to Disney pretty often. I refuse to go anymore. I just, it's a waste of money because I don't enjoy it. Yeah. So my Disneyland stuff, after she graduated from college, that was where she wanted to go. And that happened to be right at the time. Um, this was a great Disneyland experience for in, because there were very few crowds. It was right after the Rodney King riots. And so people were scared to come to Anaheim even. They like no like, you know, the parking lot was nearly empty. Um that's a lot of reasons to be scared to go to Anaheim. That's not one of them. I know, but they like tourism was way down because people were freaking out. Um so we had to just kind of there were no lines really and that was awesome. But um also it was right after I had gone on a cross-country road trip all around to small-town America. And, like, the Main Street America part of Disneyland, it totally made me mad. They nailed it. <laughs> no, it's just, like, it's a miniature version, and it's just way too clean. It, just, it was like, oh, my gosh. But That's funny, because Mike and I talk about how we went to all the places in Disneyland before we went to the real places. Hmm. And, and he's like, yeah. And then the first time I went to, like, New Orleans, I was like, yeah, they kind of nailed it at Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> Which creeped me out, realizing that it was such a, it's like a miniature replica, but it's like, you know, di- a diorama. And I did actually have my first cup of coffee at Disneyland. I remember feeling very adult. My mom and I went into something, <laughs> one of the little diners or whatever on Main Street America, and I was like 13. I was like... Yeah, I think I'll have a cup of coffee. So I just thought that was, there was a very memorable moment with my mom and I drinking coffee. But uh, Don't you have a story about Great America? I do. I was just going to get into that. Because we in the Bay Area, the great, Marriott's Great America. I don't even know if they're Marriott's anymore. Not Marriott anymore. It's Six Flags. Six Flags. It's, it's kind of a more... Uh, Warner Brothers, right? Wasn't all the... the Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was confused though. Like, but anyway, they, they were not the Disney characters, but they were those. And that's a totally a sidebar. But uh, we would go there a lot. And it was a little bit more geared for like teenagers and kind of adults, I feel like, than Disneyland is. Um, lots of big old roller coasters. And there was one called, I don't know if it's actually still there. This was years ago, but in the 80s, one called Willard's Wizard. And it was Willard, I think, was a guy who started a Marriott or something like that. And um, anyway, it was one of the first like corkscrew, you go upside down ones twice. Um, that was kind of a new thing at that time, as I recall. And we loved going on it. And it was, you know, it was it was a roller coaster. It was kind of scary. But uh, I had a friend who I played soccer with for years. My parents knew their parents, his parents, um, and his sister knew my sister. Anyway, he was there with not me, but with another group of friends. And this uh, Willard's Wizard, where you get on the little the ramp or kind of the dock where you get onto the roller coaster, the new, the cars come rolling in on their on their rails, and they, the car behind. The one that he was about to get into, the brakes failed, and it oh. and then it hit the car on the rails that he was ready to get into right as he was kind of stepping into it, and then it kind of went flying forward, and then the, the cars like bounced backwards, and he fell on the tracks, and the cars came back together and killed it, and it was this oh. really like yeah, as a you know, you think about that, this favorite place you like to go, it was never quite the same, of course. And it was just a, such a freak accident. And, you know, you hear about people, you get scared that you're going to die on a roller coaster. And then it actually happens to a friend of yours. And that was very, I mean, I think about that still, because I actually put that plot line in a certain way into a, a novel manuscript that uh, I've been working on. So it's, hmm. it's a, 
yeah, that was truly haunting. Um, I don't know if I ever went back to Great America because we moved not too long after that to the Seattle area. But that definitely sticks in my in my brain every time I think about going. Actually, I don't know if I've been on a roller coaster since then either. But I well, might I have. Yeah. Yeah, that that's going to be the most bummer of this entire episode. So, yeah, it gets yeah. Yeah, yeah. up to and including my correspondent peach, which is a bit traumatic on its own. Huh? but in a completely different sort of way. But so we should get to the interview. It, it might run a little long, so, uh, but I, I think you're really going to enjoy it uh, for anyone that wants to see behind the scenes at Disneyland and the Jungle Cruise. I'm going to officially welcome you, Mike Segalis, to the Story Forward podcast. Thank you. I'm Thanks so glad we finally we got a hold of you. There's lots of uh, uh, wires crossed that we got you here uh, straight from... Isle of Palms, South Carolina. Are you still Isle of Palms, South Carolina? Oh, I'm actually on Solomon's Island. What's the What's the difference? Help me out here. The difference. <laughs> Solomon's Island is actually really cool. It's got uh, Fort Moultrie here, which is where Edgar Allan Poe was stationed. Um, so it's it's actually pretty cool. What's the so on, on a Pat Conroy level? Did you go up or down? Pat. Well, you know, in in uh, what is it? Um, Prince of Tides. I believe the character lives on Solomon's Island. I think he does. So, yeah, I think that's up. Yeah. So you've raised your pack. Conroy quotient. Um, and I know that at present you are a tour guide in Charleston, and we're going to sort of circle around to that at the end of this sure. conversation. Sure. We're here to talk about the Jungle Cruise because you were a legendary Jungle Cruise captain. I think oh, anyone, well. anyone who's a Jungle Cruise captain is legendary. I but, thank you. Okay. Under that, under with that, that, that I qualify. Yes. And what, what, like, years, what years and how long were you a Jungle Cruise captain? I was, well, you know, I was there for, um, uh, in 87 and early 88 is when I went, I went down there for the summer. Um, I was already 23, right? So I was like, usually past that era, but I was finishing up school up in Chico, which is about back then, about 10 hours north. And I had, you know, I said, and I'd been working, as you may know, at an ice cream store um, for many years. <laughs> and finally, I said, you know, why not do the, 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 so I went ahead and got a job there and was able to get it on Jungle Cruise, which was, of course, the dream job. Right. That was like the best job you could get at Disneyland, at least for somebody like you or me. Yeah. And so so before we get to the job, um, for people that don't know, Mike and I met in 1981 working at a Baskin Robbins where we're both from in Orange, California. And so I just want you to explain to people who may not know how Disneyland looms in the imaginations of people who grow up in Orange, California. Well, it's, you know, imagine that the fairs come to town and every night the fair is going on uh, now, now in some cases you get to go every night if you're from a wealthy family maybe you do go there at least i know for me it was like you heard the fireworks every night 9 30 you know and we all took pride in that didn't we, we were like oh 9 30 well it must be fireworks so we felt like we were kind of insiders we could say that yeah yeah and for me you know for me it kind of became a bigger thing probably than it should have been but we um, you know growing up there um so close to it and uh you know, and and then we we just didn't go. My family didn't go. Did your family go a lot? We, Disneyland? Did you get to go much? We went on special occasions. Um, well, that's good. <laughs> we didn't. You know, one year, and I think, did you get the passes with us that one year when we were in college? We got the summer. It was the, the video. Well, no, yeah, definitely. I had the summer. Yeah. Once I got to like late high school, or early, maybe it was just in college, was when they had the annual passes, which are like 120 bucks for the whole yeah, summer. Yeah, it's yeah. like one day's a pass today. Yeah. We went and, once, uh, Steve Bilt and I went once and just sat on a bench in Tomorrowland for two hours because we could. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember going when I was at Chapman college was there in orange was near Anaheim. And I remember sitting there, you know, in class at, you know, my, my 11 o'clock class going, I've already been on space mountain. I was kind of looking around. <laughs> um, there was this weird pride you'd had. That. And, and we even had a fascination with the Disneyland hotel. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just like, hey, well, you know, and the thing was me, okay. So it was me. Like we, we lived, I think I figured out from my house was like seven miles away. So my dad, and when I was a kid, we would say, I would say to my parents, uh, Hey, it's uh, Saturday morning, right? Uh, me and uh, whoever, you know, uh, Joel, we're going to go, uh, we're going to go to the uh, Carl Jr. to go Carl Jr. Okay. And it was Carl Jr. As you know, down in Catella and whatever it was, what is it, two miles away or something like that for me? Uh, but we weren't talking about that one. <laughs> we didn't. We were actually going to the one that was all the way seven miles, six and a half miles away, right near Disneyland. And then we, so we'd walk down there all, the, all day. So we'd walk all the way through Anaheim. We'd walk all through, you know, and it, it wasn't really that nice a part of town. It was actually like the, you know, body shops and everything. Then we'd go across the Santa Ana River somehow, usually in the most adventurous way we could. And then we'd end up getting, I mean, seriously, we did, I was almost killed one time by a train. Going to cry before uh, before Stand By Me, I was that guy. I seriously. And then we finally get over there, and then we go by Anaheim Stadium, which was another landmark, of course. And then we get over to the area. You'd come down that I was on Cattell Avenue. You come down that uh, thing, and you're suddenly in Disney World. It was like you know fifties motels, but still, you know, you were in this place where people were coming to from around the world, and that was that was exciting. And we would then walk to the thing. We'd go walk in the parking lot, get on the trams. Because we'd sit there and you just kind of hope that somehow somebody's going to look at those poor kids. They really want to go in. Let's buy them some tickets, honey. Never, never did happen, by the way. We'd get on um, uh, the, the, but the, uh, the hotel trams. Yeah, they were totally open to us. So we'd ride the hotel trams uh, over to the hotel. Then we'd walk around the hotel. And if we had money, we'd pay for to get the, you could, you could pay to sit inside the, the monorail in front. You couldn't get out. You just got to go, go, which is really like torture, but you go in. <laughs> and the most amazing thing to me is I did that one time. I think my brother and I, George, I used to take my younger siblings there. And we'd go down there and we're like, we're parked at the Tomorrowland Station, right? We slide in there and I look across and there's my one of my best friends, Buddy Tylen. And he's over there. I'm like, going, Buddy, get the door, you know, because if you could have unlocked it, we can't unlock it from the inside, of course. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't. And uh, that was it. Anyway. So that was so, so Disneyland was a big deal to me. And, and access to Disneyland was a big deal. We used to walk around the park. There was this um to to the left of the um to the left of the main gate was a uh, little used uh, what do you call it a picnic area. And he was just you probably never knows there. And we'd go back in there. And if you went back there and you put your ears against the you could hear pow, it was the gunshots from the jungle cruise. Oh it was like you were inside Disneyland, you know. And so we I mean we knew like there were a couple different spots. There was one door, there's a green door. If you put your ear to it, you can hear the dinosaurs inside the tunnel. Wow. And um you were that really was really cool. you're really speaking of a bygone era. And I don't know if kids today have that same thing, like the thrill we would get driving on the five and trying to see the top of the Matterhorn as we you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Matterhorn, I saw it. That's it. That's it. But you got, you know, and a lot of people, I'm sure you had the same experience in high school. A lot of people got jobs at Disneyland. You know, they were usually the guy who walks around with a little thing, picking up trash. Although a lot of the drama people, and you were a drama guy, became characters too, which I guess was a whole nother world of. I, you know, it was funny. I don't know what it was. Well, I, I, you know, honestly, part of it was that I never had a really 
I didn't have a car and then I didn't have a reliable car. And the thought of having to go down to Anaheim, which even back then seemed like a long way away. Yeah. If you have to get there at seven in the morning for a cruise, you know, for a, um, and I don't, whatever reason I kind of always did. And then there was a part of me that thought, man, I don't want to ruin the magic. Yeah. I mean, Disney to certain yeah. people, maybe it was like this for you, man, getting out there in the frontier land was important because yeah. that was the closest I came to the frontier or the country, you know? Uh, and so I was really afraid that would go away. But for some reason, when I was 23, I threw a caution to win and got a job there and, uh, and totally loved it. It was, it was like, it was like Baskin Robbins. You know, when I worked at Baskin Robbins, people go, you're going to hate ice cream. Now nah, I still love, totally love ice cream. So explain to me the process of getting a job on the Jungle Cruise. Well, I mean, it, you know, you, that this is circa 1987. I don't know what they do now, but, yeah. but then, um, you know, you put in your application, I guess. And then uh, I got called for an interview. It was a three-person interview. Oh, my gosh. Gosh. Yeah. The three, yeah. And so it was a three-person interview, which was interesting um, because they weren't all for the same job, I understand. They were just for to be hired into Disney. Actually, what I really wanted to know, though, so once you get hired, you get a script, right? Yes. So you get hired and you get, you get a um, – and um, they have a, a spiel. And this is again. I'm talking 1987. Yes, B. It's the uh, the SOP. Um, well, no, I mean that's not true. It's Back by the water. It's, the water calls yeah, the whole thing. I mean, it's the standard operating, you know, mm-hmm. um, spiel. And the spiel is, it's uh, you know, it's been altered. I think over the over the decades by uh, you know uh, people have come up with jokes that have been added to it. So it was interesting the way that worked because you were not allowed to. You were allowed to deviate from it. They knew you were going to because you had to. I mean, yeah, come on, you're saying the same thing. I mean, I understand we're going around. Usually it'd be three times an hour. If you're working, a, you know, you're working, say I'm working the unload spot, right? That means I'm going to, uh, in, in an hour, I'm going to do like, I think it's like three tours, and then I'll do one. I think I remember I bought one there. Since I'm, and I'm I spend the other time unloading people, you know, from the ships or the boats. And so, so you're saying it a lot. And my point is, it's about an eight-minute tour total. So people would alter it. And, you know, you alter it because you can come up with, you know, things that you think sound funnier. Um, but the rule was, at least back then, was if you deviated, if you, if somebody complains because you said something about the backside of water <laughs> or whatever it was, some some standard, uh, something that is, that is part of the canon, then, then you're okay. But if you say something that's off there, even if it's not something bad, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, there was somebody, I guess, the story as I understood it, was that you know, you, when you walked onto the boats, right? You walk onto the boats and you go around the back, uh, the the, uh, the engine, uh, and around the engine, they they have this thing that looks like a boiler kind of thing. It's this black uh, thing. It's all spray painted black. So a lot of times they say, uh, is your loading? You say, just walk around the black nuclear reactor at the front of the thing, right? Well, somebody heard that and said, what? Black people need to sit in back or whatever it was, right? And whatever it was, they went and complained. And they understood he wasn't really being racist. But the point was, he said something that wasn't on the spiel. Somebody complained about it. He got fired. Okay, okay, I see. Um, I feel like I could recite the Jungle Cruise from memory. So I'm sort of yeah. you were allowed to go off script. Well, you know, it's funny because I um, I uh, just naturally just went off you know, went off script. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you something's cool to happen. That this there's probably the most off script I went. I went off script a lot of stuff, but you know, most of it just falls up. But you know, if you remember the, the tour, you go out there and you're in the African belt, right? And there there's this cave where these these lions are eating a zebra. 
Yes. And ladies and it looks like the zebras have made a kill. Yes, the zebras have made a kill. Um, and then they'd say, I think the, the official things you could say were, um, which reminds us of the law of the jungle. Don't be a zebra. Yeah, so my dad. And I was like, yeah. I, so, so I say, uh, the zebras have made a kill. The say. lions have made a kill. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. This is, that would be interesting, actually. Yeah, wouldn't it? Um, the lions have made a kill. Uh, oh, for those of you with children on board, Mr. Zebra is asleep now. Not good. No, I'm just kidding. He's dead. Dead in the door now. And then I move on, right? Then you hit the, the, the gas and you move on. Um, now, the funny thing was, I worked all that summer and then I worked all that fall. And then I finally knew it was time to go back to college, finish college, get back to adulthood, right? And uh, get on to adulthood. And uh, this guy in the locker room, uh, and you know how it is when guys talk to you in the locker room when there's nobody else there. Um, but <laughs> he was a nice guy. Actually. It, it, I mean, you know, seriously, I mean, you know, it, it was very nice. He came over and said, you know what? I remember you. And I go, really? He goes, yeah, you're a jungle skipper, yeah? And he told me that he and his buddies had decided they were going to, this is something we would have done. They were going to judge all the, the jungle crew skippers and vote who's the best one. He said, and you won. Nice. And then he recited that line. And I go, no way. <laughs> it was pretty cool. It was like my last day of working too. So I was like, thank you. That was pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Um, do You had Pee Wee Herman on your boat, right? I, no, I did not. I had a, oh. a friend who had Pee Wee Herman on his boat. And, and it was funny because he did a Pee Wee Herman impression throughout the, uh, you know, he would break into Pee Wee Herman. And so then all of a sudden he looks back there and there's Paul Rubens sitting in his uh, boat. And he's like, uh, and I, yeah, I don't think that went too well. Uh, I don't remember any celebrities uh, on my boat. One of the weirdest things that happened to me was, and this is a thing where you don't know, because um, I get on the boat and I always did this thing. We, I don't know if you remember, but you go through this area, I think it's, I don't know. The, you, I think it's after the, 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 the backside of water. And, and you go through the rapids of Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Uh, be careful. Folks, we are now going through the dangerous rapids of Kilimanjaro. And really, they just have like these, these rocks with these little bubbles popping up. <laughs> so it's pretty, fairly unimpressive. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm going through. So it became this thing where it, 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 I did some spin on it where it's, it, somebody had said, uh, or as Captain Neil would say, and they'd say, let's go, or something like that, right? Whatever his catchphrase was. Because Captain EO, Michael Jackson movie, those of you are. I would say, I'd just do the same thing and just repeat the same line. I'd say, we're now going through the, the treacherous rapids of Kilimanjaro. Or as Captain EO himself might say, we're now going through the treacherous rapids. That was a pretty good laugh line. Well, so one time we get off, and there is a man who is incensed. And I get off, so I immediately step off because I'm I'm switching positions now. So now I'm unloading. So I actually I'm unloading my own boat. And this guy gets off and looks at me right in the face and says, "Who's that guy? What was that guy's name?" I go, uh, uh, uh. "This guy looks at me, looks at the, another guy helping me, looks at me and goes, I don't know the guy's name.'" And I go, "Why?" He goes, "That guy says something offensive." Then it, it, it came out. It was something about I don't know what he took out of that. Maybe he's Michael Jackson's agent or something. But anyway, um, if, if they had gone. Downtown, you know, if he downstairs, like, this guy said this, he made fun of Michael Jackson's voice. That probably would have been it. I would have been gone. So, really, you would have got booted for that. Yeah, uh, it wasn't on the it was on the script. So that, that was how I understood it anyway. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, okay. So it doesn't matter if it is actually offensive. If it no, no, it has nothing to do with that. It's it's whether or not they can say we fired that person that offended you. We're sorry. Yeah. So and I feel like even after you left, you were a member of the fraternity. Of Jungle Cruise captains. Yeah, years later, didn't you say there was a website where they would tell stories? 
a friend of mine who I knew back then, I trained with him on Big Thunder Railroad, and but he was also a jungle cruise skipper. And he had the interesting, he'd be a guy for you to talk to someday. Um, but he uh, he was a lawyer there. He went to Loyal Marymount and uh, became a lawyer. And uh, somewhere in midlife, he decided he would go back and work at the Jungle Cruise. So he was, I think he was still a lawyer, but he was right. And he would write about it. And this thing, and I was like, oh, that is so awesome. He's a really great guy. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on his last name. His name's Mike, though. Great, great guy. Oh, that's interesting because, you know, he probably went to law school with my friend Darren, who also went to Loyola at that time. Probably did, yeah. Yeah, I probably knew him. Uh, what was the hardest part of the job? I love that job. It's one of the best jobs I ever had. I mean, seriously, there were some people, it was funny because I, you know, I didn't understand it. I, you know, it's like when you go to the beach and somebody goes, I love the beach, but God, I hate the sand and the, uh, the salt water. I'm like, that's the beach. And people go, oh, I, I love the jungles, but I hate having a freaking spiel all the time. And I was like, this is the only right where you get to talk, you know? And there were some people, the thing was, it was the, the biggest employer. It, it was all male when I was there. Yeah. So you're a guy, um, you would get hired there. That was like, you know what I mean? That was the opening uh, for, for rides for your team. Now, 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 granted, there were lower, I think, well, no lower, that's not fair to say. But I mean, you know, like you said, a lot of the 16-year-olds who got hired didn't get to go on Jungle Cruise, right? They, I mean, they didn't get to do rides. They, they got hired and they were picking up diapers out of the bushes right. and stuff. They're working at the Carnation place. And- right. Yeah. But, but um, just, you know, it was considered a pretty high. Uh, yeah. High I think it, was job. Of, it was one of the more skilled positions. One of the skilled ones and, and one of the, you know, you know, you had a cool uniform. I mean, you know, I mean, you didn't think, you know, you're not, I'm not wearing uh, some, you know, I didn't have to wear uh, the, the Mark Twain cutoff shorts or whatever the heck they were wearing. Not the Mark Tw- on the Mark Twain, but on the, uh, the island. Jungle, uh, oh, I, I thought you were talking about. Do you remember? So I had a friend who worked on the boats that you had to paddle. What were those? Oh boats? yeah, yeah, the canoes. Yeah, but they were mean. The guys who ran those were mean. Oh yeah, they all had great. Uh, they were in good shape because they were paddling, and pretty much they're dragging tourists who don't know how to paddle. You know, <laughs> yeah, they had those. Remember, they had those fake um, uh, uh, Davy Crockett canoe hats, right? Yeah. And of course, they don't have tops in them, which oh. is weird. And yeah, they were like headbands with with the tails sticking out the back. I which would be bad, which would be really bad for us now. <laughs> it's part of our Franciscan vow. Thank you very much. So we like to paddle. Yeah, those guys. It was, that was one of the neat things. We had these. Uh, they had um, uh, staff. If you wanted to come at whatever it was in the morning, like five or something, and you they had canoe races, and you'd have teams. Okay. And of course, the, the canoe guys won every year. <laughs> That's what they did all day. But you guys had the best spiel. <laughs> we we made better remarks as we went around, whereas we were passed by. Yeah, definitely. Those guys, man, there's some great guys in that canoe. That was one of the jobs when I look back and I go, and in fact, doing what I'm doing now, it was, you know, when you look back and you go, okay, what did I love about old jobs? And I look back and I said, you know, getting to, uh, you know, do the same thing and do it better and get better. It's performance in a way, a new audience every 10 minutes, you know, 12 minutes. And, um, you know, and plus people that are that are uh, you know in a good mood. You know, well, and you bring up a really good point because it was a performance, and it was you did you know however many twenty five performances a day, and your audiences could change radically within ten minutes of each other. Right. Yeah. I a new line, and it didn't go off well, and you go okay, and you know you know what we're talking about because we're both been professors, right? And you know you do something, and you, go, oh, you know you know we I know I'm sure you added humor to your you know, things and so did I, and you do something and think it was going to be effective and hopefully funny or whatever. And then it didn't go well. And you think, okay, uh, whatever it was five months from now, I'm going to have to get that right. You know, 
well, here it's just eight minutes later, you're doing it again. So would you, would you, so you would, you would hone material. Did you ever try something more than once that didn't work the first time? Uh, gosh, probably. There were some where you knew, you know, it's just the crowd wasn't going to work. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't your fault. You were doing the best you could. Did you feel and, uh, you got on the boat? What's that? Did you feel it when they got on the boat? Like, could you sense the crowd? Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, some days it's, you know, it's eight and a hundred degrees, you know, and everyone's been yeah. packed in line. And I remember one time I, uh, I, I had a bunch of uh, people from Israel on the crew and they did not speak English. You know, it was clear. So you're speaking to a bunch of people, telling all your jokes, no laughs, obviously, through the whole thing, right? But, you know, they're nice people, but they're, you know, they're, they're just looking around. And uh, and then I come around, it's the attacking natives, which I think they're getting rid of, by the way. Yes. And the attacking natives, they're, they're throwing spears at you. And I go, no, no, it's Egyptians. <laughs> Broke up the boat. They loved oh, it. Good. Yeah, it was great. 1987, that killed just so you know, twenty twenty one gets you fired, but nineteen eighty seven. Well, if they'd got anybody had gone downtown, they could have gotten me fired. Yeah. Uh, so you've done a lot of things. Like me, you've done a lot of writing and and performing related things in your life. You know, you've you've sung in front of thousands of people. You've taught college classes. You're a tour guide now. You slung ice cream to unappreciative masses and occasionally appreciative masses. How does it, how did you carry the Jungle Cruise experience with you? And the rest of your life experiences? It's a good question. Um, it was important to me. Like you said, Disneyland was, for whatever reason, was extremely important to me. Mm-hmm. It was a thing that I picked off and I'd done it. You know, it was kind of neat too, because it was an all male thing at the time. And I know that's sex or whatever, but it was, it was close as I ever came to boot camp. You know what I mean? I mean, that, that being a, you know, in a fraternity for a semester, but you know what I mean? It was kind of neat, you know, being out there in the jungle with the guys and stuff and having that camaraderie. So that was important doing something that I was really afraid to do uh, because it was such a big thing to me. I mean, it wasn't that big to some other people, but to me, it was a big deal. It was like, oh my gosh, this is like. Because it was the Jungle Cruise, because you had been performing for years by then. Yeah, true, true. But it was, it was yeah, it was, I mean, it, and, and I wasn't, I wasn't afraid that I couldn't do the Jungle Cruise. Because, you know, you and I had been on, on the Jungle Cruise before you were, well, yep. Yeah, but I mean, if you, you know, and you sit there and you go, this guy's good, man, he could have done this, you know? And so yeah. there it was kind of neat to, to be able to tune that up some. Um, and, you know, and frankly, there were some people there that shouldn't have been doing it, right? It was, it was some people that they didn't like people. And, you know, they, they, you know that's where you get those guys going, you know, uh, my name's Steve and I'm doing this. <laughs> what are you doing here? Those guys, you couldn't tell if they were just being like doing a Stephen Wright version of the Jungle Cruise. Well, some, well you know what? And sometimes they nail it. And there were, and there were so many, you know, it's like telling like the job I do now. I always say one of the great things about um, is there's so many different ways to do it right. You know, and there and there was from the jungle groups. You know what I mean? There was people. I did. I would do a thing where I I did kind of like a hyper surfer dude thing, and it was fun because I'm overreacting to everything all the way through. And there were other people who just were dry as could be. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named Steve Lieberman, who uh, see if you see this um, was out there. He just killed me. And he had like this dry since you were all the way through. There's another guy who would do yeah uh, with uh, Freddie. I can't remember his name, but he would uh, you know he'd be May West. They say you're ready for a bumpy ride. It's <laughs> like '87. I was like pretty over the top, but um, no, there's a lot of a lot of good ways. I, one of the best things I thought I remember one of our uh, the trainers said, "I said remember, and this is and you get this, you know, we haven't grown up there. That was the will. That was the jungle I'd ever seen. And that, yeah. I'm not. I've not been to the jungle. I may never. And as we said, I said you know, a lot of these people, this is the closest they'll ever be. 
jungle to, to, to take in an adventure. So it's not just a floating stand-up routine. Mm-hmm. Take a minute, let people experience this place. And I really did work on I really did try to do that because because it meant so much to me as a kid, you know, to because you felt like right. Wait, there's always nobody as you go on through real life and people go, Hey, have you ever been on a boat? You go, Yeah, of course I've driven boats. And you think, well, with rails on them, you know, I mean, you know, and you realize those experiences that seemed so important at that time, they yeah. were all in that place. That was how I felt about New Orleans Square. Like right. when we were by the time we got to high school, I've never been to New Orleans. But I love New Orleans Square. I just wanted to go there and act like I was somewhere. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point that I never really thought about. What that that was part of what they were selling. Yeah, for particularly for those for locals. I remember going to uh was it uh what was it called back then? Bear Country. Bear yeah. Country, uh, there was a restaurant there and there was a waterfall. And that was the closest I got to the mountains for most of the year. I mean, maybe I got a vacation sometime, but mm-hmm. that was like and you, I could get there. I get there in my car, which you couldn't do, you know, um, especially with my car back <laughs> with the Cougar. The Cougar is not the most reliable vehicle. Um, no. yeah, that is interesting because we lived in a place that you, and then this part you didn't know because you grew up there, but having moved there uh, when I was 11, we fantasized about living in Southern California, you know, in the right. middle of the winter, it'd be snowing and, and we'd be thinking about how great it would be. I always tell this story when, so when we moved to California, my dad came first and he left in January and we took him to the airport and it was snowing and, you know, it was a little airport in Pennsylvania. And at the time you'd walk out onto the tarmac to get to the plane. Right. Also at the time you could walk all the way to the gate to see someone off. Well, he yeah. walked to the gate and it's snowing. And right before he leaves, he turns to my mom and he takes his coat off and he says, I won't be needing this anymore. And he gets <laughs> on the plane and goes to California. And we were like hero moment, man. We're, when we got to California, we went swimming because it was March and it was 72 degrees. So it was a place that we all dreamed of going, but for the people that were there, you didn't get to go to the Amazon or New Orleans. I mean, you got to go to Disneyland. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, and to get to go. And that's why when I got hired there, it was such a big deal to me to be inside of Disneyland, to, to get to be there before everyone else was there. I walked down the street. It was this weird kind of thing to think, wow, I, I, I'm actually a member here. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm like, a, I'm, I'm a citizen of Disneyland in a way. And, uh, you know, at night, uh, well, back in the days before what they call it, what is, uh, oh, they still have this, what's called at night, the big show they have out there in the Frontierland. Uh, um, not the Main Street Electrical Parade. No, no, I, no, out on the water. Out on the, out on the river, they have this big thing. I guess I remember that. Fantasmic. It was called Fantasmic. Mm. And it changed the whole the whole west side, that whole part of the, where I worked, because it used to be totally quiet there, right? Everybody that was in, that was there to meet girls, they were all in, in Frontier in Tomorrowland, where all the dance places were, right? And yeah. all the music out there, out in the west, it got really dark, and you go on this Mark Twain steamboat, and it was like you were actually out there in the wilderness, you know? And I remember, I, I you know, if you'd have a deadhead, if it was real slow night, and they'd say, uh, hey, Mike, listen, we don't got enough people when you want to go ahead and take a deadhead. And it was awesome, because you get to go out through the jungle by yourself. You know, and you go out there and, you know, we'd sit on the on the front of it. Just I remember just laying there, just going, you know, just real serious, probably praying. Just going, man, thanks. This is so awesome. Looking up through the stars. You actually see the stars, even though you're in the middle of Anaheim in that dark. It was pretty awesome. That is awesome. And I just got the note from my overlord that we need to wrap it up. Understood. Um, keep talking about Disneyland forever. And I could keep talking to you forever, which is something I don't get very many opportunities to do. Yeah, but. But um, so thanks, Mike, for coming. Um, thanks for having me. I 
can't think of anything else. So you don't have anything to promote. Usually we have people on, they have something to promote. Promote your, uh, promote what you do for a living now. You know, death care is important. And I hope you'll, uh, no. Um, <laughs> coming to Charleston, South Carolina, it's a good place. Got a lot of history. I will say this, when I first got here, uh, it, you know, and I'd say, God, they totally got it right in, in uh, the New Orleans Square. <laughs> That's totally what I thought. It's like Disneyland, which is like the highest compliment I could give anything. That is really funny. All right. We want to thank Mike Segalis and his great Disneyland stories. And Larry, thanks for guiding us through the Jungle Cruise with Mike. And we actually have Mr. Larry Rosen as our correspondent. Here he comes telling a story about, also about Disneyland and girls and fathers. Here he is. I'm going to tell you a story about Disneyland because where I grew up, every story is about Disneyland. That happens when you live 15 minutes from the Magic Kingdom. Everything you did growing up in all those different places, I did at Disneyland. Think about it. But it's not entirely a story about Disneyland, though Disneyland plays a big part. It's also a story about junior high school, ambitious nerds and cheerleaders, OP shirts, and dads. Well, let's start at the beginning at my junior high school. <laughs> See, where I grew up, high school didn't start till 10th grade, which is significant. It meant that instead of spending ninth grade as a lowly freshman, you did it as a ninth grader. You ruled the school. Ninth grade at my junior high school was fantastic. It was like a shrunken down version of high school. We had our own varsity sports teams, for example, and if you didn't make varsity, you played JV. But if you did make varsity, you got a letter. Every weekend there was a party, and sometimes there was a band, and always there were bedrooms you probably shouldn't wander into without knocking first. We even had a formal end-of-the-year dance and we had our own cheerleaders. I guess it was all designed to be sort of a practice version of your senior year of high school. I highly recommend it. It was way better than being a terrified freshman. Well, despite spending most of my life up to this point being short, wearing glasses, and running home from school most days to avoid getting beat up because I had this habit of starting sentences with the word actually, I entered ninth grade with a lot of social ambition. And what I decided to do that year was to fall in love with the most popular cheerleader in school. And look, it wasn't as far-fetched as it would have been just a year earlier. I'd grown five inches over the summer. I'd gotten contact lenses. I ditched my 70s Jufro for a sleek 80s cut. And I'd successfully begged my parents to replace my entire wardrobe with A-smile pants and OP shirts. It put me in a position where I was at least a fringe player on the popular team, though looking back, that was probably almost entirely because of my association with my best friend, Chris Drape. Either way, I was in a good position. I even sat next to the most popular cheerleader in school in history class. The only problem was I had no idea how to get her to be in love with me back. So I tried everything I could. I tried helping her with her homework. I tried being the funniest guy she knew. And then when none of that worked, I went the other way. I tried acting like I was mad at her all the time. I went to parties and brooded. I sat in the corner while everyone else had a good time. Nothing worked. I spent the year in the friend zone and probably should have been happy to even be there. Closet full of OP shirts or not, 14-year-old me, one year removed from A-list nerddom, was way out over his skis. And worse yet, like most of the girls in our school that year, she had decided to be in love with Chris Drape. But Chris Drape was such a nice guy. He had gotten where he was by being a truly nice guy that I couldn't even get mad about that. And yet, for some reason, I never gave up. I was like Tony at the beginning of West Side Story, positive that this great thing was just around the corner, waiting to happen. Plenty discouraged me, but nothing dissuaded me. 
even when, after months of vowing that I'd ask her to the end of the year ninth grade dance, my method of approach, which was to ask her friend to ask her if maybe if I did ask her to go to the dance, if she'd go with me, it was so convoluted and took so long to execute that by the time the message got to her, she'd already decided to go with someone else, a guy who surfed and had parties at his house. Honestly, I never had a chance. The school year ended and nothing changed, and then I guess something came over me. Maybe it was because Chris Drape had moved to Connecticut. Maybe it was me trying to set a tone for the upcoming first year of high school. But early in the summer, I gathered all of my courage and called up the most popular cheerleader in school. I asked her on a date, to Disneyland, of course, and she said yes. But there were conditions. Her best friend, the one who took so long to relay my message about the dance, would have to go which meant I'd have to bring a wingman of my own. I looked over my friends and in the end chose poorly. A longtime friend who was smart, funny, a fantastic athlete, but to my knowledge had never spoken directly to a girl by himself. And he was sarcastic. I've got to be honest, 40 years later, I don't remember too many details of that actual day at Disneyland, though my supportive friend told me a month later that I'd made a fool out of myself the entire time. I don't remember it that way, but it's not unlikely. What I do remember, though, is the four of us entering the park, which was always so exciting, no matter who you were with, and thinking just for a second that finally, I was with a girl at Disneyland, and that girl was the most popular cheerleader in school. I remember walking down Main Street, USA. Walking down that street was always the most exciting part of the day to me because you were anticipating what great things were gonna happen next. And this time, I hadn't yet noticed that the cheerleader was walking ahead of me with her friend, while I was walking a few paces back with my friend. And that's how it went most of the day, her with her friend, me with mine. When we rode Adventures Through Inner Space, the makeout ride, you better believe I was nervous, but I shouldn't have been. It was the four of us, not the two of us, with the cheerleader and me bashed up against the walls and our wingmen safely separating us in between. I'd say I was the only one who knew we were on a date, but I have a feeling everybody knew we were on a date. They just had different agendas. The day ended after the 9.30 fireworks show, like it always ends. We left the park and waited for my dad to pick us up because we were 15 and nobody could drive. And I'll tell you right now that I've buried the lead because this is really a story about my dad, who was never big on advice about girls and often didn't let you know what was going on in his head. To him, this was another chore. Pick up my son and his friends at Disneyland, drop them all off. He pulled up in his green Alfa Romeo sedan. I sat in the front. Everyone else sat in the back. By now I sensed that it hadn't been a good day and it could get a whole lot worse. I was gonna have to say goodnight to the most popular cheerleader in school. But maybe I could turn it around. It was my last chance to salvage the day, to let her know that this was a date, the first of hopefully many. But I'd have to do this, I realized, sweating, in full view of her friend, my sarcastic friend, and my dad. See, she lived in an apartment building, and the guest parking spot was right out in front. If I was going to pull this off, I was going to do it under the glare of my dad's headlights, like we were putting on a play. A sad, nervous play, but a play. As we came closer to her apartment, I silently wished that my dad was someone else, a less distant, more in tune dad. Maybe he could back in, or park in a different spot entirely. But he didn't. This was just a chore to him. He pulled right into that spot. Then he leaned over and told me, you should walk her to the door. I nodded numbly and got out. But as I did, I saw him do two things I hadn't expected. First, 
he turned off the headlights. And then, as I was getting out of the car, he turned around and, looking right at our wingmen, said, so how was the park? Good night would not come before an audience. But it didn't really matter. By then, my failure was complete. There might have been a handshake, maybe something mumbled by me, a cheerful but non-committal good night from her, and then she turned and went inside, leaving me there at the door to realize that my ninth grade dreams were over. High school awaited. In a few months, I'd be lucky to get a wave in the hallway between classes. But the good news is nobody saw that happen thanks to my dad. We dropped everyone else off, and it was just Dad and me, driving home, not saying anything. And then he spoke up. When I was a teenager, he said, I used to double date with my best friend, Billy Manhoff. One time his dad was driving us. He waited till we picked up the girls, and then he announced to everyone, Hey, Billy, should I put a mattress in the back of the station wagon for you guys? We all cringed. It was so awful. I told myself then I'd never embarrass my son. I should have thanked him but I wasn't sure what he meant until much later. Flash forward 30 years and now I'm the dad, driving my son to pick up his first date. They're going to a movie. Look, he tells me, when she gets here, you can't say anything. Well, she gets there and nobody says anything. It's brutal. The most awkward silence you can imagine. They're both just staring out the windows. I've got to do something. But he told me I couldn't talk. Eventually, it becomes too much to take, the silent equivalent of being bathed in headlights as you try and fail for your first goodnight kiss. Finally, I break my promise. I ask him a question about the bar mitzvah they both attended the night before. You can feel the tension in the car evaporate. The headlights are off. I've saved the day, but I'm wondering at what cost. Did I embarrass him? Should I have kept my mouth shut? I don't think so. Because when I drop them off at the movie theater, they're still talking and now they're holding hands. That was 10 years ago. My son is now 24 and my dad has been gone for four years. I still talk to the most popular cheerleader in school on Facebook and at reunions. Turns out she, like Chris Drape, earned her popularity by being a truly good person. In 52 years on the job, my dad never embarrassed me. And on that night in 1980, he taught me something important. When you're the dad, sometimes you have to keep your mouth shut but sometimes you have to speak up. All right, everybody. Thanks so much, Larry Rosen. That was a great correspondent piece about girls, a theme park, but mostly about dads. Seemed really about yeah. dads to me, so. My dad, and being a dad. Yeah. And what you're looking for is a lot of me. Well, there we this go. Is your episode. <laughs> this is a Mr. Larry Rosen episode. But we want to say thanks to Mike Segalis once again. We want to thank um, Brett Battistain, our mm-hmm. favorite and only producer. But Jared Bostrom, he's our editor, our main editor, <coughs> along with Brett. And sometimes we get some awesome help from Joe Davidson of our Story Fort team. Yeah, so I was going to say. I would just yeah. encourage people to come to the Facebook group page. Yep. And uh, add your comments and get involved in a little back and forth. If you want more information about Eavesdrop Studios, about how you can contribute to the podcast, you'll find it all in the show notes. That's right. And go check out the awesome podcast network. We're on Eavesdrop, and it's ease-drop.com, which we've argued a little over if you say the .com, it'll make you old. But I'm old, Grace. But I am. Say www as well. <laughs> okay. Well, we want to thank um, just, I guess, Jared as well for putting together the, the awesome theme music. Um, 
he and his band. And we have more episodes in our summer stories season. Um, we're getting kind of closer to the end, though. And we're on yep, the yep. downhill side. Ben, hope you've been yeah, enjoying them. Yeah. yeah. Get in the home stretch. And uh, until we meet again, we must keep the story moving the story forward. Story moves forward. And so do we.